Hey everyone, Evan Wickham here. Thanks so much for listening to the Park Hill Church Podcast. We are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together in San Diego. And for us, that has always meant gathering faithfully on Sunday around the scriptures and the table and song and prayer and one another. And we're doing it again this Thursday because it's Christmas Eve. I don't know about you, but I am so excited to gather under the setting sun at 4 p.m. in the promenade at Liberty Station to celebrate God with us, the promise of the ages fulfilled in Jesus. And so we're going to worship together along with our church on the east side of the city, Neighbors Church. They're going to be joining us. So come on out. We'll be great to be together. So this is the fourth week of Advent. You're about to hear the last teaching of our Advent Justice series. But before we get to the teaching, we're going to hear from a very special guest. Get ready for our fourth and final interview with Park Hill Kids. You ready? Mm-hmm. You are? Mm-hmm. Okay, everybody, I am here with the one and only Harper Wickham. How are you, Harper? I'm good. What are you thinking about right now? Mm, right now. I kind of don't know. It's switching back and forth <laughs> Between of what? what I look at. I'm like, thinking about that now, thinking about that now. Is that called monkey mind? <laughs> uh, you have a monkey brain? I don't know <laughs> what you're talking about. That is my problem, too. We must be family. Harper is my daughter, for those of you that don't know. Harper. Yeah? What holiday is coming in like three or four days? Um, Christmas. The, yeah. Can you tell people what is Advent? Advent is every day you open a present. Yeah. And That's what we're doing. And it tells you how many days days there are until Christmas. Yeah. You just mentioned our tradition of opening presents. What's one thing that an Advent present told us to do? Reindeer food. Yeah, we, we made, made reindeer, reindeer food. food. Uh-huh. I think that was me. Yeah. And well, What did it tell us to do for other people? Wasn't it a random act of kindness? Yeah. Like pay for a stranger a Starbucks? Yeah, but mom mm-hmm. decided not to do that. <laughs> we didn't want to do that. That's, that's true. I don't know what we ended up doing that day. We Christmas caroled. By phone? Yeah, we did do that. Phone call, That Carolyn? was tomorrow. No, I uh, mean, that was yesterday. It was yesterday's that Advent was yesterday. Present. Yep. Because what is Advent all about? It's about waiting. Yeah. For who? For Jesus. Because he's going to be born. That's amazing. So, I'm going to ask you a question about Christmas. Are you ready? Uh-huh. Are you sure? Mm-hmm. What do you want for Christmas? I don't even know. I kind of want animals. Hatchimals? Mm-hmm. Fantastic choice. I don't know what that is, but it sounds cool. That actually reminds me when we went to Grandma's house and we saw Santa Claus and Santa Claus came over and he said, sit on my lap. And I said, what I, I said I wanted Hatchimals and he was like, I have no idea what that is. Oh my gosh, there's <laughs> no hope you're going to get it now. Your dad doesn't know what it is. Santa doesn't know what it is either. And so I was like, I thought you knew what every toy was. Yeah, that's how you knew his real identity. (laughs) And I would like to ask you one last question. Yeah. What is your favorite part of the Christmas story in the Bible? My favorite part is 
the angel shows up to the shepherds and says, do not be afraid. Wow. That is a good lesson to know for all of us when we're afraid, isn't it? Mm-hmm. What does it tell you about when you go to sleep at night? Uh, to do not be afraid. Yeah. What does it tell you when it's dark? To do not be afraid. Yeah. Angels from heaven told us that. Jesus said that. Don't be afraid. That's a pretty powerful command. Well, girl, I really like talking to you. I could talk to you for a long time. Yeah, it's already been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> You're pretty great. I love you. I love you too. Thank you for sitting and talking to me. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> There's mom in the background. Yep. <laughs> this is Evan Wickham and Harper signing off. <laughs> Okay, Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 8 to verse 15, and we'll jump right into the teaching, you guys. Luke 2, verse 8 through 15. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven... The shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Okay, today we finish our series on Advent justice. That's been these four weeks of Advent leading up to Christmas. You just heard a well-known story many of us are familiar with. If you've ever seen Charlie Brown, you're familiar with this story. Um, You might be thinking, what is like shepherds and angels and, and this story have to do with justice? and doing justice in the world. And I would argue basically everything. It has everything to do with that. Um, So Advent is a time for waiting, okay? And during Advent, we lament the brokenness in us and in our world. We've heard that all December in these Sunday teachings. And we long for the promised Messiah to come and heal and redeem. And what we're really longing for is this thing called justice. When pandemics are gone, And everyone is healed and well. This is the fruit of justice. When oppressors are brought down and the oppressed are lifted up. That's what happens when justice is done. When racism is gone. And every ethnicity is fully seen and valued. And all lives actually really do matter. That's what it looks like when justice happens in society. And no one culture or race is dominant. We long for this. When sin and death are finally in the past and all who trust in Jesus are alive with him forever, we long for Jesus to do this in our time. And of course, you guys, the elephant in the room is that all of us are complicit in injustice in some way, which is why God graciously invites us to cry out 
for mercy from Jesus. And through Jesus' death on the cross, we can be forgiven. So if you're here and you're new or whatever, like, or if you're walking by, you can be forgiven and brought into the forever family of God by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then the justice we deserve because we're complicit is forgiven. And we're brought into the healed family of Jesus forever. Because here's the reality. Who else is strong enough? Who else is wise enough to make all the right judgment calls? So many judgment calls need to be made. And so many of us think we have like an expert corner on which judgment calls they are. And they always kind of omit our complicity, right? And our, ourself. And only Jesus is strong enough And the invite is open. Jesus invites all equally into his forever family. And the one requirement is that you trust him. Jesus proved himself trustworthy at his first coming through his life and death on a cross for us. And until he comes again, he's calling us, his church, to carry on his justice and to do his things in the world, right? That's why we're the body of Christ. We do what he did in his body as his new body in the world. And so a question we've been asking all December, what does God's justice look like when it's lived out through his people in 2020? To help answer that question, we're gonna follow a pattern in Jesus's life, okay? We, we started with the birth story in Luke 2, and we're gonna track through the New Testament and see a very <laughs> clear pattern of justice that we as Jesus's body can embody as his people in the world. And so go back to verse eight in chapter two. It says, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. Okay, shepherds, the despised class, actually. I don't know if you knew that. Back then, when we talk about a worthless person according to society, that's shepherds in the ancient Near East. So everyone reading this, would immediately be like, shepherds, why? Why them? Like, what, why would you spend ink on a piece of paper talking about shepherds at the birth of the most important person in human history? And so then watch the next verse, though. This blew my mind when these dots started connecting late in my life in this passage. Uh, the angels say this to the shepherds. They say this, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. I bring you Talking to the shepherds, good news, that will cause great joy for all the people. So incredible here. Okay, very, very simple, but very key thing about the gospel. Right here in this story, as the gospel's being announced and the angels are shouting to a bunch of shepherds about the kingdom of God breaking into the world, they say the good news of the kingdom is for all people equally. This is key in the gospel. The gospel is for all people and Jesus comes to save all people equally. And so we're the new family of Jesus. This is built into our DNA. The good news is for the rich and the poor and the young and the old and men and women and black and white. It's for Native Americans, Asian Americans, Mexican Americans, Latinx, people with disabilities, people with or without houses. The good news is for all equally. And this is a feature of the gospel. We're all also sinners equally in need of grace. This is who we all were. And many of us, we, we still are. This is who we all are equally in need of grace. And we all bear God's image equally. 
These are two realities buried in the gospel. We're all sinners equally in need of grace, and we all bear God's image, equally possessing immeasurable value. So all humanity, all, all of us, all colors and cultures and tribes, therefore have unique, immeasurable worth and dignity equally. But, but, we also realize the image of God is broken in the world, all throughout humanity. And so we have this tendency to elevate particular people or even elevate ourselves. And it's almost like we in our brokenness tend to raise up certain humans as more human, more image bearing than the other image bearers. And we tend to push down some humans as less human. We do this in ourselves when we sin against our brother or sister or when we withhold generosity from those in need. We do this in our professional lives, right? When we treat people like stepping stones to get ahead in our career. When people are less like people and more like personnel. We even do this collectively as whole societies or nations, right? Specifically our history in America, our nation has a long history of systematically exploiting and erasing black and indigenous life, as well as a long history of racism towards Asians and Mexican and Latin American immigrants. This is our brokenness. This is our brokenness, which means for followers of Jesus, these are our justice issues that the Spirit is leading us into as the new family of Jesus. And the depth of our brokenness, we really see it when we elevate the value of our own race over other races or our own sex over the opposite sex in our structures or even in our words, or when we elevate the value of our own nation above other nations. That's the broken image of God. And so a key feature of the gospel is that we're all equally immeasurably valuable image bearers and sinners in need of grace, equally. And right here in Luke 2, this good news, this gospel, is rushing into the brokenness of the world, and it's coming for all, everyone equally. And the gospel affirms, everyone equally matters to God. And yet, and yet, yes, the gospel affirms all life matters to God. Yet, the Bible also affirms this. Although all lives matter, the gospel comes often first and foremost through the lives of those who matter least in society. The shepherds were outcasts and loners, despised. They weren't allowed to fully participate in the religious community. Shepherds were pushed from the center of power. And yet, here's the gospel centering shepherds of all people. You get that? On the first Christmas day, on the first Christmas, really, the first Christmas carol being sung by angels, no less, the angels didn't go to Jerusalem and sing to the powerful religious people. They didn't go to Rome and be like, hey, Caesar, there's this really cool event happening in the armpit of the empire in Israel right now. You should leave Rome and go check it out. The angels don't go to Caesar. The angels didn't even go to a middle-class town, you guys. When God in the flesh comes into the world bringing the gospel for all lives, heaven's attention is centered on shepherds. And in that moment when heaven shows up, what does heaven say? 
shepherds' lives matter. Then the elevated and empowered shepherds, what do they respond and do? They immediately rush in with the good news of Jesus and bring the good news to all people. That's the immediate response of these empowered and seen outcasts. Heaven sees them, heaven centers them, and then heaven sends them with the gospel. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. When the angels left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. In verse 16, so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said. Shepherds have a voice in the kingdom of God. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. That is what the gospel does. It affirms, yes, all lives have infinite value and matter to God, but in order for us to get there in the world, there's work to do. It goes through a people whose lives in society don't matter. This is the movement of the gospel, and it's the pattern of Jesus' life. This is why Jesus comes to a Samaritan woman. If you can turn to John chapter 4, you'll see what I'm talking about. He tells 12 male disciples, hey, let's take the road less traveled. Let's go out of our way to go through Samaria. They're like, why would we go to Samaria? There's nothing benefiting us there. There's nothing for us there. And Jesus has an agenda to elevate and dignify the life of a specific Samaritan woman who had been abused and manipulated by multiple men all her life. And here's the key moment, John 4, 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. They were having a debate about who the real Messiah was and where true worship was, and she was trying to distract Jesus from her core issues and all that. And then Jesus declares to her, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. He reveals himself to this lone woman. And then leaving her water jar, look at her response. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. And it says many, twice, many came to know Jesus in faith. So Jesus does the unthinkable, goes out of his way to announce his Jewish messianic identity to a mixed race. That's what Samaritans were. They were considered hybrid Jew Gentiles and they were despised by pure Jews or whatever. He goes to her, dignifies her, and announces his identity as Messiah to an audience of one woman. The good news for all people came first and foremost to and through the life of this Samaritan woman who did not matter in her culture. In that moment, Jesus was saying, clearly, Samaritan women matter. This shocked the religious Jewish community. In a day when women were not seen as equal in value to men, Jesus repeatedly, over and over, in many different ways, said, women's lives matter. Women's lives matter. And when he spoke with Gentiles, and at the time, Jewish people thought it wasn't acceptable for the Jewish Messiah to mix up with Gentiles, Jesus was making a statement. This is how the kingdom is breaking into the world. Jesus was saying, Gentiles' lives matter. 
And the early church picked up on this, the gospel that all lives are equally valid to God and all lives are God's desire. That message is coming through the outcasts and through those that are on the margins of power. The, the church picked up on this. And in Acts 6, if you can turn with me, uh, the first church had a diversity problem. You might know the story. Uh, it's a very specific multicultural problem they had. The Greek-speaking Jewish Christian widows, <laughs> it's a pretty specific niche group, the Greek-speaking Jewish Christian widows were being overlooked and going hungry when the church was sharing food. And what did the Spirit-filled church do about this? Acts 6, verse 2, it says, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together, and they said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And this proposal pleased the whole group. And they chose Stephen, man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch and a, a convert to Judaism, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So what does the church do? A specific niche culture of minority within the church is, is hungry and being overlooked. They change their staff. They actually budget differently. And they structure according to the need culturally, and they bring on seven Greek-speaking Jewish but Greek cultured men to meet the needs of the moment. And what is the church saying in that moment? Literally restructuring their infrastructure to say, right now, Greek speaking Jewish Christian widows' lives matter. That's what the church is saying by the power of the Spirit. And what was the result in verse 7? So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So whenever, this is the pattern. God wants to send good news for all lives, and he sends them through the people who are decentered from power, and they're empowered and given a voice and rush into the centers of power and things change. This is the movement of the kingdom. Starting with Jesus himself. So we're seeing a pattern here, right? I feel like we're seeing a pattern. Absolutely. Yes, all of us are sinners. All of us equally bear God's image. Absolutely, God has leveled the playing field, loves the whole world, wants to save all people equally. That is the gospel. But until Jesus returns and the kingdom fully comes, we live in a world where everything is not equal. And so on the first Christmas, God entered into a world a lot like 2020, knowing that even though all lives do matter to God, all lives don't matter equally in our current society. So until they do, God goes to those who most of society say don't matter. And God starts there. This is the pattern of the New Testament. We can go back to Genesis and see God using the weaker constantly using the weaker to overcome the strong by the power of his might to show his light to the world. Not to show any human strength or any human ideology that beats any other. No, to show his presence through the weak. That's where the kingdom of God's breaking in. And so this Thursday is Christmas Eve where we celebrate God with skin on. 
And just like the Son of God moved from heavenly glory down to earthly humanity, now we, his body, follow him from our comforts and our idealized standards of living down to practical, concrete lives of justice for the sake of the poor and the vulnerable. This is the movement of the gospel. This is what we're invited into as a church. This is the purpose of the Advent Justice Series, you guys. I don't think we've been secretive about this agenda. <laughs> this is the purpose of following Jesus to be with and remember the poor and vulnerable and to bring them with us to intimacy with the Father. So looking back on the past decade, you guys, I think, you know, you're putting two and two together. You see where I'm going with this teaching, right? Looking back on the past decade, arguably the biggest issue on the floor in our culture has been Black Lives Matter. And this conversation around racial justice, injustice that has come to the forefront in 2020, even more than it ever has in the last seven years. And so in this series, Advent Justice, it would be a huge miss. Our whole teaching team agreed. It would be a huge miss in a justice series to not look at this conversation as a family of Jesus. Remember what we've seen. Remember what we've said today in the last 20 minutes. The gospel is 100% for all lives. The gospel is after all humans to be saved and to be united with Jesus Christ. But... Over and over in the scriptures, the gospel comes first and foremost through the lives of those who matter least in the moment. And in that moment, God does not hesitate. He says, shepherds' lives matter. Samaritan women's lives matter. Women, their lives matter. Gentiles, Greek-speaking, he gets a specific, Greek-speaking Jewish Christian, widow. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is what the gospel does. So the question isn't, do black lives matter, or brown, or Asian, or disabled lives, or lives in foster care? Of course they matter, and basically everyone here, everyone, everyone would, in, in, in theory, agree with this. The question is not just, do black lives matter? The question is, do we, the people of Jesus, truly declare with our lives that black lives matter? That's the question. And as Tanika Wyatt, who many of you know, she's uh, one of the pastors here, uh, she said to me a few weeks ago, yes, yes, conversation about black lives, but also the lives of those groups who have been pushed far from power and influence, women's lives, brown and Asian and indigenous and kids in foster care, and really the largest disempowered minority of all is people living with disabilities. The list goes on. And I love the way Nikki Lerner, she, she's a culture coach from the East Coast, has been a dear friend of mine and Sandy's for years. She puts it this way, who's missing at the table? Like, that's a great question to keep in, in the fore of your life. Like, who's missing at the table? That question belongs to the family of Jesus, the generous, diverse, hospitable family of the Father. Who's missing at the table? Hospitality and genuine relationship has a way of making our lives fuller and our hearts more compassionate. And so, semi-rhetorical question, should the Church of Jesus in America be concerned with the state of communities of color today in America? And I, the obvious answer is yes. Okay, well, communities of color lead an early death. They're still way more likely to die from this pandemic. Communities of color lead in unemployment, lead in healthcare inequities, low education attainment, disproportionate imprisonment of blacks,
just five seconds thinking about the stat, five seconds dwelling on 40% of prison population is black, but only 12% of the whole population is black. That's just not comfortable with that. That does, that's, that's a painful stat. Who's missing at the table in our lives? In the lives of the church? All of us can answer that in some way. <laughs> Jesus hasn't fully come and we're incomplete and the image of God is cracked in all of us still. And so our lives, we still need each other. Who's missing? Now, let me say this. I also, I don't know how you approach the Black Lives Matter conversation slash movement slash organization slash statement or idea, you know what I mean? It's so many nuances, as you know. The movement itself, it launched in the wake of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin's murder, and then it really took off after 18-year-old Michael Brown was murdered in Ferguson, both unarmed. I know there's broad spectrum of opinions in this church, and I think that's beautiful. <laughs> I think it's a sign that the kingdom is here. There's a broad spectrum of opinions. That's one of the things I actually love most about Park Hill. We're not uniform, but we are committed to unity and love around the gospel. There's so much maturity here. Recently, a friend of mine uh, up in Portland, he sat down with one of the first black pastors to come to that city over half a century ago. Um, very white city, predominantly. And this specific black pastor, he remembers the civil rights movement. My friend asked him, so you were there in the 60s, like MLK. You were there, you felt the waves of the, move, of the moment. He's like, yes, I did. And he's like, so how does this 2020 moment, like George Floyd and BLM, compare to that one in the 60s, MLK? And, and the, uh, the old black pastor's answer, he's like, feels very different. My friend was half not really expecting that. He's like, how, how so? And the pastor said, it's like the 1960s all over again, just without God. Very interesting. His reasoning was interesting. The voices leading the 1960s civil rights movement were largely pastors and Christian voices. Churches. You know those famous diner sit-ins? We see, we see footage of of black folks taking a beating in whites-only diners uh, as protest, very successful protest. And we're like, man, that was, that's insane. Did you know the trainings for those events were intense and they were held like in church prayer meetings. Today, the church has a different, maybe more backburnered presence in this conversation. I won't say silent, but the church is so on the back burner, so much that the voices leading the charge in 2020 are now largely secular voices who also seem to embrace sexual ethics that Jesus doesn't. Which is why this is so important for us, Jesus' body, right now in America, if only for the simple fact that this is the pressing issue for millions of hurting people around us every single day. I once heard a pastor say it this way, and I actually think this is spot on. He says, if we have trouble saying Black Lives Matter because we're afraid of aligning with an organization that also embraces secular sexual ethics, then honestly, the church should have just come up with it first because it's a deeply Christian statement. And I think that's on point. If the good news of Jesus is for all lives and all are equally sinners and all are equally valued in the kingdom of, want, God wants everyone to enter the kingdom of Jesus. If that's true, 
And if it's true that that message came first and foremost to the lives that mattered least in the moment, then the community of Jesus today should be leading the way in remembering the poor and welcoming the foreigner, creatively embracing the immigrant, the orphan and the widow, while also confessing sin to their wives and husbands and kids, living just lives. It's easy to talk about justice and then the people who you live with really see the real you. Fully integrous, Yahweh-like lives. Because this is the way the kingdom breaks in. Every single one of us were far from God, all of us equally sinful, and when you and I came to Jesus, equally accepted. And so from that place of equal forgiveness, we are called out as his community to speak the life of God into the places of pain. And if there's anything we learned from 2020, you guys, it's that our country, our city, our border, our neighborhoods are still suffering from deep, gaping wounds from racism. And so, until all lives matter, catch that, until all lives matter in the moment, compelled by the good news, we take that news to the places where lives matter the least. If angels sang it over shepherds and Jesus declared it over a lonely woman at a well in the desert and the apostles said it to a group of widows, then we, the people of Jesus, can speak it over to communities crying out in pain. We can declare with our lives, black lives, brown lives, indigenous, Asian, women's, like kids in foster care and disability, like all of these lives are equally valid and valued to God. And we remember them and we move toward them. And listen, if you're sitting here, favorite part of the teaching is the ominous bell. It's usually at a really intense moment. So if you're sitting here and you're like, Evan keeps missing whole groups of people when he, when he lists groups. That's a problem with listing groups. You miss them or whatever. If, you, if that's you, yes, I am sorry. Um, this is just one sermon, okay? We are a big church. <laughs> this is one sermon. And the work of justice is a marathon together. And maybe that's the spirit leading you actually in this moment to creatively speak life into that space that you're considering. We're in this together. Uh, so let's keep Nikki's question in the forefront. Who's missing at the table? Who's missing at my table? Like your literal home table or your work community or learning community, the voices that influence you and especially your spiritual community. You break the bread and drink the cup with. Who's missing? Yeah, rock. So in, until then, until that day when Christ comes, we as Jesus followers are called to validate lives on the margin. This is the way of Jesus. And we do it by giving up our comforts. Really. We do it by giving up comforts. Practical, very practical two things. And we're going to eat and drink the bread and cup. How do we do this? What's the call? Okay, Evan, this is a lot. What's the call right now? Um, glad you asked. Practical, how to. Number one, read the Bible to be with the poor. Read the Bible to be with the poor. What do I mean? Don't just come to the scriptures to like learn about poor people. And this is something that uh, I naturally have to wake myself up from every day because I love reading the Bible for only me. Um, instead, come to the scriptures. Come to the scriptures to learn from the poor. Not just to learn about them, but to learn from them. Why? Because 
The Bible is written by them. The Bible is written by ex-slaves and people immigrating and people constantly under the boot of the oppressor. This is the Bible that we call our holy scriptures that, that Jesus passed to us to form us. So we don't take the scriptures and say, okay, what can I learn about poor people because I want to help serve poor people? No, we, we, we ask a harder question. And this is very practical. We come to the Bible and we say, how can I engage scripture in a way that I can learn from the poor and be with those disconnected from power? So if the Bible is written by ex-slaves, then it's a slave's discourse. And if the Bible is a slave's discourse, how much should our gospel inform us to like walk with people in the desert? And it comes back to relationship. Who's missing from the table? Who's missing? But if we're honest, like in a culture that doesn't value committed relationships, we like friendships that benefit us. Um, in that culture, relationships with the poor rarely happen. Or they take a lot of effort, which is okay. It's worth it. Suggestion, um, very, very concretely, once, once the COVID restrictions lift, Park Hill has a way of connecting you with, with uh, prep schools in City Heights that have 28, 30 plus different refugee communities represented in this uh, specific school that we have a connection with. And uh, once restrictions lift, you can sign up to be a volunteer mentor and literally spend 45 minutes a week with the vulnerable, some of the most vulnerable human beings in our city. It's amazing. And learning from them and playing basketball with them, it's such a joy or whatever. And, uh, or or pri prisons, once prisons open up to ministry, you can sit with men and women who are starving just to hear the Bible read to them. You realize how hard COVID has been for inmates, like the longest lockdown ever. And yet we have open doors into those spaces to be with the imprisoned. Very, very practical. Who's missing at the table? And then the second thing, and finally, stand in solidarity with communities of color at a cost to you, even when you don't fully understand all the issues. I am, I'm still very much learning this as a, as a white dude. Like, even when you fully don't understand the cause or whatever. Jesus was literally God with us. That wasn't just his name. It was his very being. God standing with us even when we were far from him. In the same way, Jesus' followers are called to stand with those who mourn and lament injustice. So as we step into 2021, what are some creative ways we can keep doing this stuff? Yeah, like protest and peaceful protest is important, but let's be honest, it's not really that hard to protest. Right? You can show up and just kind of be there and go home. Um, it's important. It's important, but it's not that hard. It's harder to take time to get educated and read brothers and sisters of color in the faith. Trust me, it's so hard. There's so many other things I want to do and read. It's much harder to slow down for genuine relationship, even if it means, honestly, listening well and responding, even if that means, like, my, my political view, I'm open to shifting. Or something as simple as finally building a budget around your finances so that you can actually make real plans to give generously. <laughs> to like a minority-owned charity in Jesus' name or something. This is what Park Hill Church has committed to. 10 plus percent of every dollar goes back out the door to fund organizations like Build a Better Us, who give uh, family therapy to communities that are underprivileged. 
Remember the biblical definition of justice, inconveniencing myself for the sake of the worthless person according to society. So whatever this means for you, whatever this means for us, I guarantee you it will mean dying. Dying to our comforts, dying to our ideal standard of living for the sake of the poor and vulnerable in Jesus' name. Following Jesus is a commitment to die. Why? Because the cross creates a new community, a new way of living. And this new way of living assumes that all of us are gonna die just like our savior died. That's why he said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Jesus' body was broken and blood poured out so that all lives would see that they are valued by a good father and ultimately be seen and loved and redeemed by one another even, equally around the throne of God. And the final picture we have, Revelation 9, this is the ultimate vision. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That baby in a manger is now on a throne surrounded by every culture of humanity. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So until then, until that moment when all lives are seen and mattering, <laughs> until that moment... You and I will find our life. We'll discover who we are. We will understand what it means to be fully human as we commit to embracing people who don't think, act, or function like us. In Jesus' name. So, can we stand together? Let's invite the Holy Spirit into this moment. I know this was, this was a big vision for justice. This is, you know, as it seems daunting. And yet this is the pattern of the life of Jesus. And he, and he doesn't call us to follow him without the power. And so we get to ask him for power. And, and as you do, ask the Holy Spirit to bring to mind creative ways you and your household can reorient rhythms around the poor. What would that look like? Let's spend 60 seconds. Just open your hands to the presence of God. He's good. He's for you. He loves you. And he desires to show his love off through us. Lord, how would you want to do that? How would you want to do that through us, God? Just 45 seconds. Just say, Holy Spirit, search me. It's going to be a new year, new challenges. Nobody really knows what to expect. Holy Spirit, search me. Who's missing at the table? This is the end of our Advent Justice series, but it's just the tip of the iceberg. It's, a, it's the first lap of a marathon. I'm here for life with you guys. And it's not gonna be a sprint. We're not gonna accomplish all of the things Jesus wants us to do with a sprint. It's a marathon. And so one brick at a time, one step at a time, one bread, one cup at a time. Come Holy Spirit now. We love you.
We want to worship you now.